Hey, GrowWire listeners, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GrowWire podcast. I'm your host, Fritz Nelson, and I'm joined, as always, by Kendall Fisher, producer and host of the GrowWire show. You forgot to add top number one favorite employee of all time, also best friend. I think that Kendall's going to be very verbose on this show (laughs) today, but we have a great guest. On this episode, we're joined by well-known angel investor and creator and host of the popular podcast, This Week in Startups, Jason Calacanis. But before we get into his many successes, we take it back to the beginning. We learn about his childhood, growing up in Brooklyn, his college days at Fordham, where he originally planned to join the FBI. You know, I I really think I would have been a good FBI agent. Do you? Uh-huh. Okay. I'm very stealth. Mm-hmm. Jason, uh, though, he became obsessed by this thing called the internet, and he kicked off a career that would reflect that obsession. He talks about starting his career at the New York Times, reporting on the internet industry. Now you have to understand that in the uh, in the 90s, it was an industry, like it just is now, right? I mean, it was, it, it's not an industry anymore. The internet just is. I don't remember those days. I was I was a young girl gleam in somebody's eye (laughs) uh well we talk also about um his learning the in ins and outs of investing at sequoia capital and what his criteria are for investing in companies today his biggest fundraising tips for entrepreneurs and his overall outlook on the world on business and on startups so you won't want to miss this coming up next you're listening to the Grow Wire podcast, a place where you'll learn the ins and outs of growing a business, running a business, or even taking your big idea, career, or personal development to the next level. It's all possible. Our host, Fritz Nelson, the editor-in-chief of GrowWire.com, will take you on an exploration of growth through candid conversations with some of the most brilliant minds in entrepreneurship, entertainment, business development, and more. Whatever your goal, we know you'll walk away with the right tools to help fuel your journey of growth. Before we get into this episode with Jason Calacanis, we'd like to share a word from our sponsors over at Blue Microphones. As Jason proves on his own podcast, everyone has a story to tell. And if you're a storyteller, you probably know Blue Mics for their iconic Yeti microphone, which has helped millions of people find and amplify their voices. Do you think maybe they might have like an angel mic? An angel mic? Yeah, we're talking about angel investing. Oh, you know, we should look in. I know they have a, um, a snowball. Do maybe, they? Yeah, they do. Why don't we have that? I, well, because it's really little. Oh. We need the Yeti. The Yeti need, is what we need. Oh, I see. Yeah. So this is for the for the big... The big voices Mm -hmm. like mine. Mm -hmm, Exactly. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're thinking about creating your own podcast like Jason has and we have here, recording some voiceovers, gaming, reading audiobooks, or what have you, then you need to check out Blue's new Yeti Caster, the complete mic and boom arm system ready to connect to, to your laptop, bringing the ultimate broadcast studio setup to your home or office. That's what we use here at the GrowWire Santa Monica Studios. And we really do enjoy recording with them. In fact, um, I actually wanted to add a couple more. So, a couple more microphones. Oh, 
for this, when we have. Are you asking for money? A little bit, yeah. A little kind fundraising, of. right here. I just put the you on Go the spot Fund because me? you can't say no on a podcast. Oh. <laughs> well, to get your hands on one of these setups, apparently just ask me um, or visit. <laughs> BlueDesigns.com. See, that's what you need to do, Kendall. Visit BlueDesigns.com and use the code PODCAST at checkout for a special price. PODCAST. Got it. Okay. I'll do that. But I also still need your credit card. Okay. To get started, I want to go kind of back to the beginning for a few minutes and talk about maybe the Jason Calacanis the world doesn't know today. Um, although they know some of your background, I think if anybody's heard you on a podcast that you grew up in, in Brooklyn, but, um, what about your, the growing up of you, um, uh, impacted the trajectory of your career? I mean, your dad was an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. 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 It's a great question. I think now that I'm an investor, I, I kind of look at a lot of these founders and I see a theme, like, show me a great founder. I'll show you, like, a dysfunctional relationship with one of their parents or both. Um, I, My dad was a bartender. He owned his own bars. He was an entrepreneur. And I grew up in Brooklyn in the, you know, late 70s and early 80s. And it was, um, you know, it was rough and tumble is how I would describe it. Um, and the bar was pretty eclectic. We had police officers, Hells Angels the mafia, and Wall Street, and everybody in between would hang out at my dad's bar, which was called Beards. And my dad was John the Beard because <laughs> he had a beard. Um, and it was like having a dad who was the mayor. He was incredibly popular, and he could talk to anybody. Literally, we would have the head of the Hells Angels uh, in New York City over the house, the sergeant from the local, you know, police precinct, and yeah, guys from the mafia who were running numbers and all kinds of other things in the bar. And I was it a sounds bus like boy. sounds like an episode of Peaky Blinders or something. It was very similar to like a Bronx Tale or any of those kind of movies from the eighties. It felt like when I watch Goodfellas and stuff like that, I'm like. This feels a little autobiographical, <laughs> well, like an autobiographical moment of my childhood. Um, but what it taught me was, I think, a lot of resiliency. The, the restaurant business is incredibly difficult. Um, and I just put a work ethic in me, I think, that um, I really appreciate. My dad had us do every job at the bar. I was a porter with my grandfather, God rest his soul, who was a New York City firefighter uh, for decades. And literally cleaned the bathrooms and swept up and cleaned the you know alcohol bottles and put them back in the speed rack. Then I was a, a busboy, a waiter, a bar back, dishwasher, prep chef, any job that needed to get done, we did. Uh, and my dad used to come home at four or five in the morning with just a huge billfold and he would hand it to us and say, count it out and fill out the deposit slips. And that's at the age of eight, nine or 10 years old. And he would be handing us thousands of dollars quarters, singles, $2 mm-hmm. bills, whatever. And we would be organizing it. Then we'd get to the bank. He would hand us the, we'd take the deposit slip. He'd go in and say, get me like $200 in quarters. Get me this many singles and deposit this money. This is at the age of eight, nine and 10 years old. I'm going into the bank, barely able to reach the teller. <laughs> and they knew who we were. And, oh, how's your dad? Yeah, tell him we'll be there on Saturday night at Beards. And I would be getting the quarters. And I'm walking out with 
you know, a couple of hundred dollars in quarters, barely able to carry them in a big, huge box. And it, it taught me a work ethic. And when I went to Manhattan, you know, I went to school at night at Fordham uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, the internet happened. And I thought I was going to be a cop. Uh, and then after I went not to college- Not a bartender, I, not a no, bar owner? No, I thought I would be a great police officer. My brother and I both took the police test. He went in. And then I, at the last minute, got accepted to Fordham University, which was kind of my dream school. And I went to Lincoln Center at night while working as a waiter during the day. And um, then I thought I was going to be in the FBI. And so I got the application. I was going to go to John Jay for criminal justice. But the internet happened, and I started a, a zine. And a zine was like the original website or startup in the 90s. If you wanted to do something cool, you would just get your friends together, write a bunch of articles, take some pictures, do some illustrations, and photocopy them, put a staple in the corner, and then sell it for 10 bucks. And it was called a zine. And that was like my first thing. Silicon Iron Reporter was a zine. What did you, I mean, what was the spark about the internet back then? I mean, we can all look back in history yeah. and say, say it now, but what did you see then? Yeah, it was super clear to me having, you know, been the first generation to grow up with a computer. In 1976 or 77, my dad came home with the Sears Atari 2600, and my friends were getting Commodore 64s, uh, and I had been on a CPM 80 machine, I think it was called, back in the day, and we were learning how to code BASIC and then Pascal, and my mind was blown by that, and then my dad bought me the PC Junior in 82 or 83 when I was 12 years old, and Somebody um, in the neighborhood had a Ventel 300 baud modem. It's this giant device, and you plugged it into your phone, and you could call up a bulletin board system and leave mm -hmm. a message and then hang up. A BBS. A BBS. And we were on BBSs trading wares and doing phone freaking and all kinds of crazy stuff. And that, to me, was eye-opening. And then when I got to school and I saw the Internet, there was somebody who was – I remember it was yesterday, there was somebody who was working in the uh, computer lab. We were all working in the computer lab making $2.50 or $3 an hour. And I was partitioning the hard drives because nobody knew how to do that. And somebody was doing the send command and they were sending messages to somebody they were dating in like Argentina or something in South America. And <clears throat> he said, watch, I'm going to send. What did you do last night? And then you'd see hop. DC, hop, you know, Florida, hop. And I was like, what's a hop? He's like, well, it's hopping from one computer to the other and it's going to eventually get to her. And then we wait and then she'd say, I had spaghetti. And then he'd say, okay, now I'm going to tell what I had. And I was like, you're talking to somebody in Argentina. Like phones worked at that time, but the idea that but you could be sending <laughs> messages and watching them hop. And I said, what is this thing? And they said, it's like the bulletin board systems, except it's like connecting all of them together. I'm like, how? And they're like, phone lines, like ISDN lines. And I'm like, how? And you know, that was basically, and then they're like, oh, well, there's FTP and there's Gopher. And then all of a sudden the web browser came out and it didn't have images or pictures on it. It was just text. Everything was gray. You remember this. And that was also mind blowing. And it just seemed to me that CD-ROMs and multimedia were kind of hitting. And I thought that's really interesting. The online servers are interesting. But the internet kind of pulled all that together and nobody owned it. And that was the big reveal. You didn't need permission. And up to that point in society, you know, if you were going to do something, you needed to ask a gatekeeper's permission. 
So if you wanted to be on AOL or Prodigy, you needed to get somebody from those companies um, to give you permission to be on the platform. You had to take a meeting. If you wanted to have your magazine in you know, um, Tower Records and have it on the shelf, you had to get a distributor, record labels, you name it. And we all just thought, Gen Xers, wait a second. The internet lets you reach any consumer on the internet, and there's like 5 million of them now on the internet right now, and you can just give them whatever you want, and they can consume it. You don't have to ask permission. That was the thing I remember very distinctly talking about with people, that you didn't need permission anymore. And for today, you just take that for granted. It's like, yeah, well, of course you can reach 2 billion people on the planet with whatever you do. Like, I can make a viral video, and 2 billion people can see it, and I will be famous for Gangnam Style or whatever it is that I make. <laughs> but that was not... That was a truly unique concept that a gatekeeper could not stop you anymore. I, I'm trying to remember, too, back in those early days, did you, do we have to give our real names or did we? Were oh, it was we, all pseudonyms. All I pseudonyms was the cyber surfer was my nickname on Pipeline and the other online services. So I was the cyber surfer because I liked Silver Surfer, the character. And I cyber punk was kind of a thing, William Gibson. So I put the two things together and I was the cyber surfer. In fact, I did a magazine before Silicon Eye Reporter for five issues with a company called Starlog um, called Cyber Surfer, which was about multimedia. So I had done two magazines when I was 23 and 25 years old. And I don't know what possessed me to think that I could do that. I was just going to ask, you know, like, so why? But I had seen other people do it. Yeah. And I was like, well, I want to be famous. So you thought starting a zine would make you famous? I Yeah, I had some very peculiar ideas about what fame and power was. And the the laughable kind of interesting one was I would go to Manhattan and I would go to like different cafes and read magazines. And I remember looking at Paper Magazine and Esquire and Time Out New York and Village Voice and all these different zines and stuff. And I'd say, wow, who picks who's on the cover? Not who's on the cover, but who picks who's on the cover. That, to me, is the height of power. How do you get that job? Right. And so I opened up the magazine, and I saw the masthead. And I was like, publisher, editor, CEO, editor-at-large, managing editor. Like, who are these people? What do they do? And then I tried to meet them. And I wound up in my, like, youth meeting David Hershkovitz from Paper Magazine and Kim, and they hired me to write a column. I met Graydon Carter. And I met Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone and mm. Graydon Carter from Vanity Fair, and they all gave me incredible mentorship in New York at the time when I was starting the magazines, and they were available to me. Um, and then I met some of the you know dot-com folks. Uh, Industry Standard came out after Silicon Eye Reporter came out, but Mondo 2000, Wired, came out the same time I was doing my magazines, right before the internet hit. And um, Upside and Red Herring were the two... Uh, magazines in the early days of... I remember Red yeah. Herring. That was Ohm's. Yeah, Ohm Malik had worked at Red Herring, and then Upside was a guy named David Bunnell. Oh, yeah. And there was Upside Magazine, and there was Red Herring Magazine, and they uh, both covered the technology business with, with a very, like, edgy kind of approach. And then John Patel, our mutual friend, did Industry Standard. That got huge. Business uh, 2.0. Business 2.0 was big. Inside.com yeah. was big. I now own Inside.com. Mm -hmm. took me 12 years to get that domain, but I got it. Um, yeah, and I just thought magazines would be the way to become powerful because I grew up in Brooklyn without power and, you know, no money. And I thought, I need money and power. How do I get it? Start a magazine. Yeah. It worked. 
It does. I mean, I, I just, um, in one of my last jobs, I ran a, a website called Tom's Hardware. And it I was, love Tom's Hardware. It was started in 1996. Of course. Yeah. Online, no print. No print, you know. yeah, it's great. Um, if you want to get your graphics card benchmarked and your DRAMs and whatever, like yeah. it's the place to go to That's get the right, right benchmark. That's right. Um, but back then, I mean, it was, it was all, you know, I mean, anybody who, anybody who had the foresight to start online. Yeah. You know, obviously the, the, the co- you didn't have the costs, so maybe it was more out of necessity than foresight, that, yeah. but, but it worked. Yeah, it was, it was pretty punk rock, the internet. Most people thought that it would be shut down by the government um, or hacked out of existence. And most people did not want to invest in it, and companies were scared to be on the internet. The idea that you would put a company on the internet was risking your company and your job if you suggested to build a website. So at the time, Sony was like, I don't think we want to be on the internet. That's just uncontrollable. Like Bad things can happen there. And I was working at Sony as like a network architect and engineer. And I remember they were like, hey, you know about the internet, right? I was like, yeah. Like, Can you put it on a couple people's computers? I was like, sure, I can put Mosaic on their computers. I put it on their computers. They're like, we found this website uh, with Billy Joel's album covers on it. And they're like, can you come up to the Sony Club, which was a private restaurant on the top floor, and meet with us and tell us what this is? And so I'm meeting with them and I'm showing them what it is. And they're like, okay, well, we have to sue this person. We have to find this person and arrest them. Mm-hmm. They took the Billy Joel covers and they put the set list, you know, the track listings. And I'm like, they're like, well, what do you think we should do? I'm like, why don't we hire him and make a web page for every artist? And they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, who is kid? Who brought this kid? Like, <laughs> get him out of here. Like, and then they wound up building websites, you know, yeah, for sure. Pearl Jam and Bob Dylan. And they really embraced it at a certain point in time. I'm like, oh yeah, this could be big for, and Sony actually, to their credit, really embraced it. How, uh, when, when did you move to the West Coast? So I stayed in New York until after 9-11. And then I moved to LA for 10 years. And when I was in LA, I did the Weblogs Inc. business, the blog company that did Engadget, Autoblog, Joystick, and I sold that to AOL, and that was my first big win. After Silicon Eye Reporter, the magazine had just gone from $12 million in revenue to 500000 when the dot-com business imploded. Everybody went out of business, red herring, upside, industry standard. And in fact, I was the last person standing with Silicon Eye Reporter because I was so much smaller and I didn't have all these big leases. And Upside and Red Herring and Industry Standard, all of those publications came to me and were like, you're still in business? Do you want to run this? And I was like, maybe. And they're like, yeah, it's got $8 million in debt. I'm like, what? How did you run up $8 million in debt? Or, um, but yeah, I moved out they here. They threw big parties. Uh, that was actually, it's interesting. That's what killed a lot of these businesses was they had taken out multi-year uh, agreements with like the Ritz-Carlton Laguna Niguel for Industry Standard or Red Herring to do events that were $4,000 per ticket events in the 90s and the early 2000s. And they couldn't get out of them. And then they had these giant leases at the height of the, height of the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley. And none of those people would let them out of their leases. So the business as well went bankrupt. And it really made me think and become cautious when I built businesses in the future of overhead. I've always been very scared of overhead. Mm-hmm. Like... Not a good idea, but um, I started when I lived in L.A., Weblogs, Inc., and I started working remote, built that business, sold it, Um, and then Sequoia invested in a company I was building, and they said, hey, would you like to be a scout since you introduced us to, you know, this Twitter thing, and you introduced us to this poker Zynga thing, and 
you told us to invest in Elon's company and we missed those three. We, can we just give you money to invest? And I was like, okay, what's the catch? I'm like, well, we'll split it with you. I'm like, don't you get paid like 20%? They're like, well, we get paid like 30, but we'll just give you half. It's not going to be anything consequential. It's just 25, 50K checks. We're going to call it the Scouts program. And I was like, Sequoia Scouts, that's a dumb name. You should call us Rangers. <laughs> and they were like, no, we're calling you Scouts. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And they were like, you have to write a deal memo. I was like, I'm not writing a deal memo. They're like, Jason, we're, we're giving you money. And the, half the economics, you just want you to write like a paragraph of why you're investing. And I was like, okay, fine. So then they give me the deal memo for Uber. And they said, why does Uber exist? And I put, because cabs suck, <laughs> period. And literally, when the Uber IPO, they emailed now the 500 scouts. And they said, here's Jason's deal memo for Uber. Why does Uber exist and why will it succeed? Because cabs suck. That was the entirety of what I wrote. And that turned $25,000 into $120 or $30 million, according to the Wall Street Journal and other folks, reportedly. Well, we're gonna we're gonna come <laughs> we're gonna come back to that, but yeah. I wanna I wanna I wanna talk about media for a minute because yeah. you're still in it. I love it. Yeah, I'm a masochist. But on <laughs> you know you so you started weblogs in two thousand and three four four. Three four. So did you th where did you I mean I I mean at that time blogs were kind of starting to be the thing. Yeah. Um, they hadn't been commercialized yet. Okay. Yeah, they were considered like Live Journal and Blogger.com, movable type. It, blogs had to be personal at the time. You had to one person, one blog. There was like a whole set of rules. Had to be personal. You couldn't have an editor, and you couldn't have more than one person writing on a blog. These were kind of the rules that Dave Weiner and other folks who were kind of the pioneers in the space had codified. And then Nick Denton and I came in and started commercializing blogging and we said there'll be ads and people were like well that'll be the death of it and, <laughs> and i was like no i think people should get paid to blog they're like no blogging should not get paid so it's sort of like like the folk music scene i would tell people was kind of like that like you bob dylan came in and started playing guitar and selling records and it got really big and it went from being like just a movement you know uh, uh, this little tiny passionate group of people on St. Mark's Place or down in the village to becoming like changing the world. And blogs did change the world. I mean, sure. The idea that the top journalist no longer had to work for an editor. Again, back to just completely disintermediating everybody and just going directly to the consumer. I had two people who worked for me. Shenny Jardin used to do our events. She was our events manager for Silicon Eye Reporter out here in L.A., and I had met her. She was working at a law firm, I think, Latham Watkins. She worked for me. And then when Silicon Eye Reporter went under, she started working for Boing Boing. Mm. And then I heard all the Boing Boing founders, who were four of them, were making $5,000 a month. And I was like, wait a second, that's like 60000 a year. I think she's making more doing the blog an hour a day than when she worked for me 10 hours a day. And then Rafat Ali started pay content when he was working for me, paycontent.org. Right. And he's like, hey, boss, I heard you. You found out about my blog. I was like, your blog, <laughs> web blog? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, kid, I'm your editor at Silicon Air Reporter. You're a terrible writer, Rafit. Like, I have to correct your spelling, your grammar. You can barely put a thought together. Like, you need an editor. Your blog is terrible. Blogs will never be anything. It's stupid. 
You're taking what's essential, an editor, and removing them from the process. <laughs> Read your own words. I just looked at your blog. It's filled with typos and spelling errors. Nobody will ever take blogging seriously. Six months later, I started the blog company because <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I found out he was making like 10 grand a month. And I was like, wait a second. And now I'm an investor in Robin's latest company, Skift. And he's like an amazing editor and entrepreneur. And blogging, you know, was really special because certain voices, you know, O'Malley, you mentioned earlier, or Peter Rojas, uh, Nick Denton, a lot of those folks who were writers, when their, their editors were actually throttling them and taking out the best, edgiest part of their writing. And it turned out that there was a certain group of people that if they just wrote what they felt, it was going to be so compelling that it would be undeniable compared to the milk toast, you know, stuff they were reading. So it was very hard for Walt Mossberg to compete against Peter Rojas doing Engadget and previously Gizmodo because Peter was writing five, six posts a day and he was writing about everything and he was super passionate. Walt was great, but he was filing once a week. Right. He couldn't keep up. And and he had to be stayed. He had to fit within the guidelines yeah. of Wall Street Journal and all Edited. things D and, and couldn't say anything controversial. Right. And like Peter would come out and be like, "This product is terrible. Don't buy it." Right. You know, and he just really like bash things. Or and we would just print anything. So we would get stuff to our tip line, like when the Razor. I don't know if you remember the Razor phones yeah. from Motorola. Razor. I got a real quick uh, legal education on uh, copyright and uh, leaked information. Razor was going to put a keyboard on theirs, and they were calling it internally the Razorberry. And so all the employees at these consumer electronics companies loved Engadget, and they would send screenshots, and they would leak information. And we knew they were leaking because they would send it from their actual email addresses, or we knew their names. Or they would submit it through the tip form, and the tip form would have their IP address from their company. Right. And so... <laughs> The, the people from Motorola are like, hey, we're going to sue you. And I would I didn't have any money for attorneys at the time, so I just called them on the phone. So I was like, hey, I'm calling about the legal letter you sent. And they're like, who is this? I'm like, it's Jason from Engadget. They're like, oh, okay, can you have your attorney call us? Or did you want to submit some paperwork? I'm like, no, I just wanted to talk to you about the issue. They're like, oh, I'm like, oh, okay. So, um, yeah, we have the razor barrier. We're not taking that down. They're like, it's stolen material. I'm like, yeah, you think it's stolen, but we're actually interviewing your CEO next week on the website, on the blog, and they're like, what's a blog? I'm like, I, I, we'll get to that. But um, just so you know, like, if you guys actually sue us, you, it was sent to us by somebody in your building. So you're probably going to have to fire some people. Do you really want to do that? They were like, uh, I'm an associate here. I don't know. Let <laughs> me call you back. And it was literally every week, some big, giant consumer electronics company trying to sue us. And I just told them, Sue us. It would be great. We'll get in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. We need you to sue us. Please sue us. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we just, they really changed history. And Steve Jobs, I remember he got really upset because they did, the iPhone 4 came out and it had the antenna. If you held it right. a certain way, yeah. it would drop the call. And so somebody put in the comments like antenna gate. Yeah. And they then, they would always read the comments at Engadget and then make that the headlines of the next story. So they're like, Antenagate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Steve Jobs was like emailing us. Like, what the <laughs> oh, sorry. And they kicked us out of the Steve Jobs keynote for the next one. And I emailed Steve at like one in the morning. I'm like, listen, my guys are in San Francisco. They just want to go to your keynote. Like, your, your PR group is banning us over the Antenagate thing. It wasn't our fault. Like, we, I'm sorry that we used the wrong word or whatever. And he's like, you're good. And then the 
like two in the morning, the PR people like let us back in. Is that the one where he said, don't hold it that way? He said, don't hold it that way. Yes, you were holding the phone wrong. Right. Well, Steve with the reality distortion field was amazing. So literally I was at one of the industry standard summits or D conferences and Steve comes up to me and he sees I have the Engadget logo on, uh, on the uh, ticket and he says, Engadget, it's my favorite site, read it every day. I said, really? And he's like, yeah, I read it every day, twice a day. Thanks, Steve. And then I watch him. He walks over. He says the same thing to Gizmodo's <laughs> editor. And he starts talking to Gizmodo's editor. He was working every press person. And the Gizmodo person comes up to me and goes, Steve just told me he reads Gizmodo every day, twice a day. I was like, he just told me the same exact thing. <laughs> he was the master. Yeah. The master. If you want to challenge your company to innovate and elevate through laughter, Second City Works is the B2B side of this world-famous comedy mecca, The Second City. They've helped hundreds of Fortune 1000 companies inspire better performance using their award-winning improv and audience-driven techniques that are powered by humor. Interested in live events, hands-on workshops, campaign consultation, branded content, and a whole lot more? Yeah, they thought so. You can visit secondcityworks.com to learn more. And we got to actually see a little of this live on stage with uh, with one of our bosses, and it was pretty fun. It was awesome. It was hilarious. It was great. Um, and you can totally see how it works. Go check it out. Secondcityworks.com. Well, what, the, the one thing about um, blogs that... You know, all the things you say are true, and I'm going to come off sounding like some old media curmudgeon here. Yeah. But the, the other thing it did was it kind of let everybody have a voice. And that yeah. you were, you know, when you were doing, when you, when in Gadget was blogging, it was doing research, it was yeah. doing real work. Yeah. And then everybody thought, well, I can do that too. And yep. they didn't put the research in, they didn't have no. the product, they didn't no. do any journalism, they didn't talk to anybody, nope. but they just put forth the opinion part yeah. of the blog. Yeah. And it made everybody think, I can be a publisher too. Yeah, that's a problem. It's a little bit of a challenge. It's kind of disappointing because when I came up, we were kind of – it was a vocation journalism. Like we were taught to take it seriously. Um, and now it's like a whole generation who they were told like, listen, your compensation in your job is based upon how many clicks, how many views, how many tweets, how many likes you get, whatever. And so I remember Nick Denton at Gawker was starting to pay people based on how many views they got. And right. some people were getting crazy bonuses. And then it just led to – you know, people wanting to do sex tape coverage or celebrity coverage, whatever. Um, and Nick really got a lot of views because of that. But link baiting was basically what Nick Denton created at Gawker and in those publications. And now since then, really journalism is about who can create, uh, largely media production is about who can create the headline that creates the click, that creates the virality, that then drives the SEO has nothing to do with the search for truth anymore. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons podcasting is really surging right now because like the original blogging before it got corrupted, as you correctly point out, by SEO strategies and social media strategies and link bait, podcasting is very authentic. You know, like we're having a conversation here. You hear my voice. And if I don't make any sense, like people are just going to stop listening, right? Like podcasting is the truth. And I think that's where all the meaningful conversations are occurring now. They were, it used to be on blogs. 
but because of social media, everything's devolved into tribalism and there's no nuance. And I think podcasting is that exact reaction. And that's why advertising and podcasting, that's why consumption of podcasting, that's why people desire to start their own podcasts are going crazy because people are longing for the truth. They're longing to have a meaningful, reasonable, passionate, sure, but truth-based discussion. And that's what the best podcasts do. They're just iconoclastic people, in my experience, who want to have a real discussion and, and have some nuance to it, right? Sure. And take an hour, take half an hour, as opposed to you clicked on something on your phone, you saw the headline, you flipped twice, and you moved on to the next thing. Right. You skimmed it, whatever. What, what, what um, just one last question on the media side is, yeah. you know, so now looking at where we are, and you mentioned podcasts, but like, you know, to think about journalism, to think about media, if you were, and I know you, you own Inside.com yeah. as well, but... Of, the, of all the new models, podcasting, newsletters, subscription models, um, curation, you know, what's what's going to work? If you were starting something today, yeah. what would, how would you do it to make money? Yeah, I think if you're going into a, the media business to make money, you probably are making a mistake. Um, it's very hard to compete right now because advertising, about 90% of the advertising dollars, the incremental advertising dollars last year went to two players, Facebook and Google, um, because they're very efficient. Um, podcasting is a really great space and newsletters are great and subscriptions to newsletters work well because you don't need to win everybody. That is the death of media. When you're trying to make something for everybody, um, it will be, by definition, not interesting, right? Um, what you want to make is something that's challenging for a group of people who really appreciate it, right? And so my podcast this week in startups is going to hit a thousand episodes. And the advice I get from people all the time is, oh, can you make it shorter? Can you make it more easier to understand or whatever? I'm like, no, I, I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it for the 200,000 people who really care about startups. I'm not trying to get 20 million that's when I go on CNBC. That's the two million people, or maybe it's a million. Who knows? Um, you know, there's different venues for that, um, and I, I think there's going to be something special with um, the best voices having their own email newsletters, and we're starting to see that emerge. Where that again, direct, really um, considered words, uh, positions in email delivered to your email box for you to pause for a second and read them. And that's what I'm trying to do with Inside. Now, we've got about 50 of those newsletters, and all of them are good or great, but I've got to get them all to great and exceptional. But they're getting there, and they're must-reads for people who are in those verticals. And if you, the secret to media is not spending a lot of money. The problem with all the media companies was they just got so fat. You know, New York Times had these giant offices that were really expensive, and they had layers and layers of editors, and they had a, p a pension, and they had unions that made it very expensive to do what they did. I would estimate, like, out of every dollar they make, maybe 10 cents goes to the writer who actually wrote the story. The other 90 cents is the rest of the overhead. What I'm doing with Inside is trying to get 70 cents of every dollar to the writer who wrote it, and then 30 cents for the overhead, right? And if I can do that, that means... I'm going to have this huge advantage over the big companies. Um, and this, it's not guaranteed that we'll be successful, but I think we're doing, we're, we did about half a million dollars this quarter across the 50 newsletters. Um, you know, that's pretty good. We're, we're going to figure it out, I think. And then the question is, can I get it from two to 10 to $100 million? Can I get it from 50 newsletters to 250 to 500? And it's going to be a long slog like anything else. 
um, you know, another 10 year success story, you know, overnight 10 year success story. Like my podcast, people were like, wow, it's incredible. It got so big. I'm like, it's year 10. Right. It's literally year 10. I started <laughs> it when I lived in LA and did it down the block with, you know, uh, an open air microphone. <laughs> Those are the first episodes were like open air microphone episodes. Uh, so, you know, it takes time to build a brand and to have high quality, but the media business is tough. Um, People are trying new experimental things, which I think are cool. Um, and I think there's going to be a flight to quality. Uh, there always is. People get tired of eating whipped cream. And I feel like the link baiting stuff is like whipped cream. It's like whipped cream is really delicious until you get to the third spoonful. And you're like, this is disgusting. Yeah. Like if I put a bowl of whipped cream in front of you and I said finish it, you'd be like, why did you do this to me? Right. I put a little bit of dollop of it on your pie. It's quite nice. But you want that steak, you want that pie, you want the substance, right? And I think podcasting, email newsletters are that substance that people are craving. And social media is that whipped cream that the tribalism and the vapidness and, you know, what it rewards is, you know, people saying outrageous, outlandish things that aren't true because they get amplified. It's it's instant reaction. It's you know, t a lot of trolling. Tribalism. Tribalism. Any, if you, if I came out and said, you know, the homeless issue is very complex and nuanced and there's not one solution, I would get zero retweets, no likes. Now, if I came in and said, you know, oh, you know, this person from this, you know, mayor blank is responsible for homeless and, and they don't care and they said we need to cut the homeless things, I'm going to get 50 retweets and a thousand likes and everybody's going to be on my side high-fiving. And, and that's just how our human species works. If you pick a side and, you know, I think that's what Fox did. They picked a side and, you know, New York Times picks a side now. Um, and social media is just not healthy. Um and I've been trying to curtail my own use of it. it. It feels very unhealthy to me. And I think that's why podcasting um, is really having this incredible, you know, resurgence of talk radio is because smart people talking about complex issues is better than dumb people screaming into the void trying to get likes and be outrageous. Yeah, it's kind of like the the blogs of the early days. It does feel like that to me, you know. And I I had an opportunity to invest in Twitter in the early days, and they showed it to me, and I was like, Ev, you you were you did Blogger, and that was a revolution. And now you've taken Blogger and you got rid of the blog post, but you left the headline. So all you need to do is write a headline. You realize that if you do this. Every idiot in the world is going to be writing headlines all day. It's going to be a cacophony of idiots. He's like, yeah, it's going to democratize everything. I'm like, you don't want to democratize this. That's democratizing idiocy. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I was just like – and, you know, there is something nice about everybody being able to talk to each other. But when you add anonymity um, and you build the algorithm and you care only about engagement, that's the that's the thing that's killed it. If they didn't have an algorithm and it was just reverse chronological order and they take out the likes and they take out the retweets and you just follow people and nobody gets amplified more than other people, it would lower engagement but it would feel healthier because you would just curate your own feed. But what Facebook and Twitter and a lot of these platforms do is they're just saying, oh, this thing got a lot of likes, got a lot of retweets, see that first. Now you see it and you go, oh, I'm seeing that first. I should be outraged. 
or I should retweet it. Oh, I should, that's how I should behave. If I want to get rewarded in the system, that's what I should do. And there's no nuance. There's no like intelligent conversation left on it. And Twitter in the early days was playful and fun and nuanced and interesting discussions. And I think all the intelligent people are like, you know what? I'm going to just step away from this, right? And, you know, it's a pendulum. Uh, but like that whipped cream metaphor, I, I believe ultimately in the consumer's ability to at some point say, enough. I want something better. I want something. I think that's why like if you, you'll see like, Preet Bahar, uh, his podcast, um, Brady Stanalis, Joe Rogan, you know, wherever you sit on the spectrum of who you like to listen to, uh, stay tuned uh, with Preet um, and uh, still processing from the New York Times. Like these go for an hour, two hours, and they really talk about things of substance. And I just can't get enough of it. I am addicted to podcasts now like I used to be blogs. And it's really changed my consumption of media. I have I have FOMO of blogs. Let's talk about um, investment now. Little mm. change to another um, hat that you wear. Yeah, maybe your your main hat these days. And now I've heard you talk on other podcasts about um, your philosophy on angel investment. But um, for our listeners, um, maybe you can just kind of give your philosophy on that. Yeah, um, I am an angel investor and a seed investor. So I make investments of $25,000 to $2.5 million in about 80 startups this year I'll do. Next year, probably 150. I have a team of 15 people. Uh, and I wrote a book about it called Angel, um, where I just explained everything I've learned in the first 150 or so investments, the first 10 years. Um, and I've professionalized this. But at its core, angel investing is about picking people who you think are going to succeed uh, and who will not give up, right? You really are investing in people. Everybody has the same ideas. So when podcasting starting to get big, everybody's like, well, podcasting, there there should be a network. Oh, people should pay for it. Oh, there should be analytics. Oh, there should be an ad network. Like the ideas are obvious. What you need is somebody who's not going to give up um, and somebody who has the ability to really study consumers and build them products that delight them. And, you know, Steve Jobs was one of these people uh, who really delighted customers and really studied their behavior. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. Founders who just have that, they're craftspersons, like they can really build something refined. And when I looked at Uber and Travis was showing it to me for the first time uh, and he had two cabs on the road, the cab icon was a cab that was sort of driving uh, west uh, when you're looking at your phone. It was driving to the left, but it was coming south down the map. So it looked like it was drifting down, you know, the Embarcadero. And I said, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's the cab? And it was like really jumpy. And he said, yeah, we're going to actually make like six or seven icons that will turn it so it actually looks like it's driving in the right direction, <laughs> not going down the street and knocking everybody over and flipping over and rolling down the street like it's a, you know, a stud driver driving it. And I was like, ah. This is somebody who's really thinking about every nuance of the product. And then I said, where's tipping in all this? Like, He's like, we're just going to pay people you know, a flat rate. We're going to get rid of tipping because it creates friction. And I was like, well, I'm from Brooklyn. I like to tip. He's like, we just want to get you in and out of the cab. Tipping takes too much time. We're including it. We're paying more than they get. And, some things. and 
then I was like, well, what about the address? How do you get the address? He's like, oh, that's the best part. You don't have to tell the driver the address. You give him the address and then it launches the Google Maps. I was like, oh, because that's 90% of like every time we would get in a cab is trying to explain to them where you're going. He's like, yeah, the idea is to take out all the friction. And I was like, wow, you're going to save two minutes of talking to the driver and telling him the address only to get it wrong. You're going to take out payment. It's just going to just, you just walk out. How do you know if it got paid? They're like, well, your credit card's in there. I'm like, how does the driver know your credit card works? He's like, well, we'll pay the driver if your credit card doesn't work. We're not going to let you launch an Uber if it doesn't work. I was like, wow, so many details he had thought about, right? And, and the, that's what you need is really an unhealthy obsession with your product in order to win. Because if you don't have that unhealthy obsession and you're not willing to get down to that level of granularity, you're just not going to win. And but somebody's going to come along and just totally beat you. <laughs> But at the same time, you also, so like, you passed on Airbnb. Yeah, I didn't have the, with Airbnb, I didn't take a meeting with them, but I had heard about it. And when somebody told me that idea, I said, wait a second, you're saying I'm going to stay on somebody's couch. It's couch surfing is how they explained it to me. I was like... That was their pitch in the beginning. Yeah, it was originally okay. well, it was originally based on the couch searching, couch surfing phenomenon on Craigslist. Uh -huh. So there was like a section of Craigslist where you would be couch surfing and you'd say, "I have a couch, I need a couch," kind of thing. And so their original idea was to do couch surfing. I think that might have been one of the original naming ideas around Airbnb. And I said, "So I would stay for fifty bucks on somebody's couch." I said, "Like a serial killer's couch." And they're like, no, no, it's not a serial killer. I'm like, well, how do you know it's not a serial killer? <laughs> and they're like, well, because we have a reputation system and we have the driver's license. We do a background check. And I was like, well, serial killers are, you know, sociopaths. Like, they'll know how to get a driver's license and fool your system. No, thank you. Um, and they're like, well, no, you can also host people in your house. I'm like, like a serial killer. I can host a serial <laughs> killer. Like, so I wake up in the middle of the night with somebody standing over my bed with like a giant, you know, knife. And they're like, no, no, you don't get it, Jason. And I don't. If you ask any group of people uh, in the early days of Airbnb, like who stayed in Airbnb, you'll see people under 30 years old, they've all stayed in Airbnb. People over 40, none of them have stayed in Airbnb. Now that's changed because the product also evolved. I didn't understand that for young people, staying in an Airbnb would be the difference between going to Japan or San Diego. Like they're going on vacation. They're either going to go to Arizona and stay at their friend's place or maybe they're going to go to Tokyo and Kyoto and stay for 40 bucks a night somewhere. And that was a huge unlock that I didn't see, but the founders did. And then the other one was that nobody saw, and this is why investing in people is so important, because things emerged that nobody anticipated. The thing that emerged with Airbnb that nobody anticipated is that people would actually buy apartments or you know, take pool houses and design them to be better than hotels. Now you stay in an Airbnb. I'm staying at a house here in Santa Monica that I rented. Um, I think we rented it on VRBO, not Airbnb, but it's the same thing. And it's a better experience than being in a hotel. Sure. So it evolved. And Uber had a very similar thing. Nobody ever thought that people would go full Uber. That was a weird moment when a friend of mine, David Sachs, said, I sold my, he had like that Porsche Cayenne or whatever, and he loved it. And I was like, He's like, I'll pick you up. I was like, oh, would you get rid of your portion? He's like, did you, did you get a driver? And Dave was like, no, no, this is an Uber. I'm like, what did you do? He's like, I sold my car. I'm like, you sold your car? He's like, yeah, I'm full Uber. I'm like, what's full Uber mean? He's like, I only take Uber. I, he's like, I did a spreadsheet. 
And David Sachs, the famous, you know, founder of Yammer, showed me like the spreadsheet. He's like, look, if I take this many rides, my insurance is this much, my my parking is this much, this is how much my payment is. I could be full Uber, it costs me maybe 10% more than owning the car, but I get back all this time where I could actually be working. And there's a whole generation of people who are full Uber. You've got millennials now whose parents have them on their accounts. They're like, I don't want my buy a second car for my kid and insure and I don't want them driving. I want them to be safe. You know, and full Uber, there was somebody who wrote an analysis of Uber where they compared it to the taxi industry. And they're like, there's no way this company's worth more than that. And then Bill Gurley, you know, came in and dunked on him. He, he did the Series A. I did the seed round. He uh, he dunked on them and was like, oh, by the way, we're, we have more cars on the road in San Francisco than there are taxis. So comparing it to the taxi business, you're not understanding what's happening here. This is inducing more behavior than currently exists. And that's what the great companies do. They induce a market to exist. They manifest a market that did not exist before. If you think about meditation, when we invested in Calm four, five years ago, we bought 7% of Calm for $378,000. I had met Alex and I was like, meditation is going to become a thing. My friend Sam Harris, another podcaster, was like, yeah, meditation is huge. You should meet my friend over at UCLA. And I was like, UCLA? And like, yeah, they have a mindfulness program. I'm like, UCLA has a mindfulness program to teach meditation? They're like, yeah, they're studying it. I was like, wow. So Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal are doing meditation with Phil Jackson. There's a mindfulness school at UCLA. It's going to work. People can deliver meditation on their phones into their ears. It's the same as going to a meditation guru. And there's no meditation gurus that you can go to. And there's no meditation classes in Boise, Idaho, or even in Brooklyn. Like to find that would be hard, but you could do it on demand. So Calm seemed like an easy bet to me. And then now here we are five years later. It was the app of the year in the app store. It's doing $160 million a year in revenue. They have over a million paid subscribers. And they'll have 10 million and eventually 100 million, I predict. Like that seems completely plausible to me. Uh, and this little company that, you know, nobody believed in, nobody would fund, you know, if you just take a moment to think, what if it works? Your brain is trained to think all the reasons why things won't work. To be a great angel investor, you have to think, well, what if it does work? So explain that because I think, you know, that that gambling mentality is, you know, I mean, any investor has some bit of that, but on yeah. the angel side, it's a little bit different maybe. Yeah. So if you're investing in Netflix, publicly traded stock, you can look at the history of Netflix, look at the number of subscribers. They'll tell you some guidance. There's 60 analysts who are covering it. And so you just have to make the bet like, okay, is this going to hold up? And yeah, maybe I'll double my money. Maybe I'll lose half. But there's no chance to go 100x or 1,000x your investment. Nor does anybody expect that. You expect the stock market to grow at 7 8% a year. And over seven or eight years, you will double your money. In angel investing, my thesis is maybe every 30 or 40 investments, one of them will become a breakout, hit unicorn status, and return greater than 30 or 40 times your money. The problem is what I studied was almost every person I met who had sour to angel investing had done two or three investments or just one, put $250,000 into somebody's cousin's, roommate's, sister-in-law's brother, and that person blew the 250 k and they lost it. There was no diversification, and there was no chance to hit an outlier. 
And so the, the concept in poker would be implied odds. If we get into a poker hand and you have $500 in front of you, I have $500 in front of you. If I get you to go all in, even if I have slim odds, the most I can win is 500. But now if the most I can win is 500,000, we're playing deep stack poker. Well, that's gonna change how I look at playing the hand with you because there's a big prize if you win. There's no big prize to investing in public equities. There's a modest, double your money every seven years, it's great. With angel investing, you have this outlier. So in fact, if the idea makes total sense, it's likely not a good angel investment. It's a good public markets investment. Netflix makes total sense today. Netflix did not make sense when they said, we're gonna mail envelopes to people and have them mail them back to us and this is gonna work and it's gonna kill Blockbuster. Nor did it make sense that they're going to buy people's libraries and stream it to people. In fact, Mark Cuban, who had done streaming, said, like, I don't think Netflix can, the internet can handle the bandwidth. Eventually it did. Um, and so what I tell people is make a list of all the reasons of why this company will fail and make a list of the one or two reasons that it might succeed. Rip up the list of why it could fail because it takes no effort to understand why something could fail. What you want to understand is what would the world look like if it did succeed? And if you take Airbnb as an example or Twitter, who would ever predicted that the president of the United States would be using Twitter? I certainly didn't see this when I was had the opportunity to ask that the president of the United States' main communication method with the world would be Twitter. If I told Evan, Biz, and Jack 10 years ago, guess what? The president's going to wake up every day at 5 a.m., and send out 10 tweets, and that's what's gonna be covered for the next 24 hours, and he's not gonna do press conferences anymore. They'd be like, come on, right? They would, but that's what happened. And that's exactly what happened. And you look at Airbnb. What if I told you a young person could go anywhere in the world right now and stay for $50 a night in a really cool place that's as cool as a $200 hotel room? You'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. If I told you you could get off the plane and Cutter or Sydney or London and use your same Uber account to take a ride somewhere and it would be half as much or a third as much as the taxi you were paying for last year, you'd be like, well, that's crazy. Like, right. You have to just retrain your mind to say, what if it does work? And what if it pays off 100 to 1? The big investments I've made, Uber is a 5,000 to 1 payoff. That's not 5,000%. That's $5,000 for every dollar invested. Right now, com.com is paying off at probably $200 to one. We put in $378,000, it's worth 60 million. This is a whole different way to reprogram your brain to understand odds. Our brains are not meant to understand this type of outcome and you have to kind of retrain yourself. So when I teach Angel University, I've taught this course on angel investing 15 times now around the world, Hong Kong, Sydney, all over America, Canada, and when I teach it, I say, you know, if you don't get to 30 or 40 investments, you're not gonna have this experience. But if you do get to 30 or 40, you're likely to have this experience. One of them is gonna pay for not only all the investments you've made, but all your future investments. Like, I can keep angel investing forever, because I had a 5,000 to one. Which American company started with a guy in a garage, was featured on Shark Tank, and now has over 1 million customers? Hint, they're reducing crime in neighborhoods everywhere. Here's Ring Video Doorbell founder Jamie Siminoff with his secret to success. It's true. In just a few years, we've had huge growth. We've hired hundreds of people, expanded our warehouse, and we're shipping millions of units a year, all while making sure our customers are happy. 
I've had lots of things to worry about, but I never worry about our finance and accounting because we use NetSuite from Oracle. From the beginning, NetSuite let me see what's going on with my business in real time, from revenues to expenses, customers and orders, even HR. I run my business from a dashboard right on my phone. NetSuite has been my business management system from 10 to a team of over 1,000. And NetSuite will be my choice as we continue to innovate and grow. Go to netsuite.com ring to see how Jamie scaled his business. You'll also get our free guide titled Overcoming Your Five Obstacles to Growth. That's netsuite.com ring for your free guide and the story of a great American company. netsuite.com ring. So your thesis is the more chances you can give yourself to bat, not at the not at the obvious ones, but at the less obvious ones that we're gonna yeah. have, you know, that some of them are going to be unicorns. Yep. And you've hit on six six unicorns. Six yeah. unicorns. Yeah. And counting. I mean, there might be another six in the stable that just haven't gotten there yet. We have a bunch that are at fifty, a hundred, two hundred million dollar valuations. And these are real companies now. You know, I know a lot of people look at the unicorn kind of phenomenon and they're like, oh, things are overvalued, whatever. 160 million in revenue is what Calm is reporting. 160 million dollars in revenue a year in their sixth year, fifth or sixth year in business. I mean, these are real numbers, and this is a company with 40 employees. Like, it's bonkers. Like, Slack, Uber, you know, Dropbox. Like, it, the the list goes on and on of like companies that are printing money because. When we started, we started this conversation talking about the internet having 5 million people on it over this incredibly slow network. Now there's 2 billion people, and they have a supercomputer in their pocket to complement the laptop or desktop they use for an hour or two a day now. And that supercomputer is on a high-speed connection that's faster than any connection that existed 20 years ago. Like literally your 4G connection, your LTE right now, is faster than anything we had in the 90s available to us. That's mind-blowing. It's And the number of, the, the original discussion of why people derided the internet, I remember it was like yesterday, is nobody will ever put their credit card in the internet. Apple's releasing a credit card next month. People are more than willing to ship imaginary money to each other, Venmo, credit cards. People are like, yeah, I can put Crypto my credit Cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's what I meant by imaginary money. Right. Okay. Monopoly money, Chuck E. Cheese tokens, Bitcoin. <laughs> they don't, people don't care. They're like, whatever. Yeah, money. Yeah. People are buying cars online. I bought four Teslas in the last decade without ever talking to a human, right? The idea that people would buy a ticket on a flight or a hotel room was crazy. Now people are buying rooms in other people's houses they've never met. Yeah, I went to France with the trust that the yeah. Airbnb that I got there was yeah. going to, you know, actually be there. And and there was no doubt in my mind. Right. Cuz right? if there was, they would have gotten bad ratings and been kicked off the platform by now. And you also thought to yourself, and even if this person were to flake, cuz that was the number one objection people had. How do you know if it's going to this person's gonna be crazy or not. How do you know they're a serial killer? How do you know if they're gonna be there? You're gonna give them your money. And it's like, well, all that got worked out. But when evaluating it, those would be very valid concerns. So all you have to do is suspend disbelief. If it does work, what would the reward look like? What would the world look like? So if we're talking about AR right now, augmented reality, this is something that seems absolutely crazy. 
augmented reality. You put on some glasses and it projects onto your eyes something in the world. So if we were looking at each other, we would see our mutual connections above our head. If we're walking down the promenade in Santa Monica, we would see what's on sale. We would see how long it would be till the next you know, set of donuts were coming out. That seems crazy. It's not gonna seem crazy in 10 years. It's going to seem obvious that you're never gonna walk up to a person and say, have we met before? Because you're gonna have glasses on and it's gonna say, here are the 17 emails, here's the tweets that you liked of this person's, here's who you know in common, and we're gonna start on second base, essentially. We're like, oh yeah, I know, you know this person, that person, oh, you went to Fordham in the 90s, I went to Fordham in the 90s, oh, you were psyched. That's just walking up to a random person. Right. So if somebody comes up to you with an idea for AR and they're like, it's very easy to say like, well, I don't know if people are ever gonna to wanna to do that. That sounds creepy to me. Or I don't know if people are gonna buy the glasses for $500. You're like, you don't know if people are gonna buy AR glasses for $500? Like, that's literally what I hear from people. I don't think people are gonna spend $1,000 on AR glasses. I'm like, iPhone right. 15 years ago is $1,200. Yeah. Like, and people cannot buy enough of them. Yeah. It's the great, and by the way, people feel $1,200 for an iPhone or whatever, $800 for the Pixel 3. They think it's the greatest deal in the world. And it is. You use it for five hours a day, divide. 1,500 hours a year, it's 50 cents an hour, 10, 20, 10 we, cents we, an hour. We panic if we don't have it, if we leave it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you you literally, if you forget money, you would not go back to get money at your house. If you leave your phone, you will head back to your house. There's no doubt about that. I, I want to ask you about, you know, you, you have certain philosophies in your investing too. Um, you're not super focused on Silicon Valley companies, um, you have, um, you know, you've been pretty outspoken about bad actors. Um, you got, a, you, you sold your Facebook stock. Um, you've told people that, uh, taking money from Saudi Arabia was not a good idea. Would you have had those philosophies, philosophies back in your early investing days? Have you gotten the luxury of having those views yeah. or were you always like that? I, I, I've always been very opinionated, and I think the reason I continue to be is because where I grew up, being candid and being straight with people was rewarded. I, we're all the products of, I think, our childhoods. And so back to your original question about growing up in Brooklyn, you know, people told it to each other straight, you know, looked each other in the eyes and just said, like, if there was an issue. Um, and I have a big issue with human rights abuses. Um, and if I'm going to go make money, by investing in companies, and these founders are going to go, you know, make a lot of money for the investors potentially. I want to know what those rewards are going to empower in the world. I'm not comfortable with Saudi Arabia's stance on, you know, gay rights, women's rights, and human rights. Um, and I would not advise my companies to take money from Saudi Arabia. I blogged that. And I said, listen, Masayoshi-san, who's a friend of mine, um, and I said, I don't think you should take money from the Vision Fund either until he works it out. Guess what? He just raised his next fund. Saudi Arabia is not on there. Um, and I think it's something, if you don't stand for anything, what's the point, right? And with Facebook, I believe there are, you know, a lot of what they've done uh, in terms of user privacy has made it harder for all internet companies and so I think it's important to be able to take criticism and give criticism. I've tried to be a better actor and be a better investor and, you know. Does um, that extend to like 
your friendship with Travis and what Uber went through and yeah, Robin Hood, sure. another one of your unicorns yeah. is going through right now with some of the controversy around that. Yeah, there, I mean, if you're doing anything interesting in the world, there's going to be a debate about it, right? So that's fine. And I think it's how you respond to that. So with Uber, when they had their worst year ever and there was a lot of bad press, you know, I was – you can be certain working behind the scenes to make sure that those situations resolve themselves, even though it's a very small investor, because um, I, I care about them getting it right, right? Um, and so I think as investors, sometimes you don't have a very large amount of equity in a company, so there's really very little you can do. In the Uber situation, I had very little, but I did have influence, I think, and I had a lot of conversations with Travis about like, you know the situation, and I think he sincerely wanted to make it better. And... Um, you know, now I own l much larger pieces of these companies, like with Calm owning five or six percent now after some dilution. With some of these other companies, like Blockable, which is doing housing, um, we own maybe fifteen or twenty percent of some of these companies. You know, we're we're um, we have to be great stewards, you know, and make sure we're doing human positive, world positive uh, things. And I think about it a lot now. You know, it was one thing when I'm just you know throwing twenty five, fifty k checks out there. It's a whole nother thing when I'm putting two, three, four million dollars into companies and joining the board. And, you know, I want to make sure those companies run well. And you can be sure I have conversations with every founder about this is how a company should run. And these are things you need to do early on to make sure the culture is established, the values, the morals, the operating expectation uh, is done properly. Um, and to learn from those mistakes that people make, you know, and when they do, my job as now the elder statesman at 48 <laughs> years old, uh, you know, uh, not the punk kid from Brooklyn, you know, radical zine publisher in the 90s, my job is to say, hey, listen, here's how bad this can get. Here's the scar tissue I have. I've watched some really gnarly stuff go down. Here's how to avoid it. And here's why you should be focused on it, right? Like, I have to have a conversation probably every six months with somebody who gets an extraordinary amount of personal wealth and then starts deploying it in a way to kill themselves. We call it toxic wealth. Like literally every guy who makes a bunch of money goes and buys some very fast car or wants to be a pilot. And I don't see the female founders doing as much. seems like a very specific thing that guys want to do. Like I'm going to buy a very fast motorcycle. I made a bunch of money. I'm like, you're going to die. And you just made all this money, and now you're going to kill yourself in your little two-seat Cirrus plane? Really? And I had to sit somebody down who made nine figures and was flying himself around on this little Cirrus plane with the parachute. And I said, listen, you made all this money. You've got kids. Put somebody in the right-hand seat who's got gray hair and has done flying for 20 or 30 years because you can afford it. And if you flip this thing and kill yourself— your kids are going to think, wow, my dad was so selfish that he decided he needed to fly himself around this tiny little plane and didn't even have the responsibility to put a 75K co-pilot <laughs> in the seat next to him, right? And, you know, it's like stupid stuff like that is now part of what I do for a living is really sitting people down and saying, like, you don't need to go to the party or you don't need to, you know, be out there doing shots with your team and partying all night. Like, you're the boss. Act like it. Yeah. You know, like, and it's, uh, yeah. I wanted to um, just ask one last yeah. investment question. Yeah. And you, you actually brought this up before I could. But um, female founders, um, 
A lot more we, of them now. Yeah, well, in, in um, I don't know what the statistics are now, but we we had a stat from 2017 that females receive only 2.2 percent of total VC funding. Yeah. You know how do you how do you look at that, and how do you what are you doing to impact change? Sure. There? Yeah, our team cares pretty deeply about it, and three out of the four managing directors on our team were female, um, and we weren't seeing enough women uh, applying to the accelerator and we weren't actually seeing enough on stage at our events and we weren't seeing enough in the audience at our events and probably 10 years ago we started addressing these issues and i'll give you the tactical things that you can do one of them is we would have we give free tickets to our events so we'd have launch festival or scale conference which we're doing in the fall we would give away 2,000 tickets for free and then sell maybe a hundred for people who wanted to come to the dinners and whatnot and we would see organically 10 or 15 percent be women we said, well, that's kind of depressing. We're giving away free tickets, and the audience is only 10% female. And then Jackie, who is our managing director of education, started increasing the number to 15%, 20%, 30%, 35%. And I was like, how are we getting these to go up? She goes, oh, um, we put uh, an optional question where you could state your gender on the form. I'm like, okay, how did that make it go up? She goes, well, no, I, I take the 10%, and I email them, and I say, do you know any other female founders? Hit reply so we can give them and introduce us. And it turns out if a female founder then tells another female founder they're going to the event, we went from 10% female in the audience to 20 to 30. And now our events, I think in Sydney, we had maybe 35% female in the audience. On stage, uh, we had a similar problem. You invite, back in the day, Sheryl Sandberg, Marissa, and a very small cohort 10 years ago of female CEOs, uh, or CEOs in Sheryl's case. And they're booked, like, you know, Cheryl or Marissa would be like, Jason, I, I need to work. I'm getting invited to 20 speaking gigs a week. I understand you need diversity on stage, but I also need to work. Um, and we had to work really hard to then go find more women speakers and open up the aperture of what we were willing to talk about. And I used to be a snob about it, I'll be honest. You know, maybe 10 years ago, I was like, if you're not the CEO, you can't be on stage. And then um, uh, Freda Kapoor said to me, you know, Jason, what kind of world do you want your daughters to inherit? You know, why does it have to be the CEO? And I was like, I, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of like people always want to send their number two or number three person, and I want to always have the CEO. And she's like, well, you get to make the decision, so why does it matter? I'm like, I guess it doesn't. So then we started finding people who maybe weren't in the CEO slot and getting them on stage or finding people who had something really interesting to say. And so our events went from being maybe 10 or 20% on stage being female or diverse to being over 50%, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but we still weren't seeing enough applications for the accelerator. So we got the audience solved, we got the stage solved. And that started to make the flywheel go because I think if people can see people on stage and they see people in the audience, they're like, oh, I belong here. Right. And I remember one founder told me she went to a Y Combinator event where they would have like a social thing and she was an entrepreneur and somebody came up to her and said, oh, is your husband a YC founder? And she was like, no. I'm not married. And they're like, oh, why are you, do you work in PR or something? And like, like double insulted Jeez. the person. And she's like, no, I have my own company. But I, and this was, oh, it was somebody who had worked at Y Combinator or something. Like some, it was a Y Combinator alumni. And she was like, well, I guess I don't belong here. And 10 years ago, Y Combinator, like many institutions, were all, you know, developer bros and not a lot of women. And so we saw that and we were like, hmm. So we started something called Founder University 
which was people who were right before we were ready to invest in them. We look for people with traction, maybe 10K a month in revenue, which is what Fitbot or Calm and other people had when we invested. We said, who's right before that? Let's do female founder university hmm. and a, f a founder university just for underrepresented founders. And we let people self-select into it. So we had trans people. We had sometimes people who were gay or uh, maybe Indian or Asian, which some people are, say are not underrepresented. They're overrepresented. I, you know, I can't get into the politics of like who gets to you know, be categorized and as such, but we just let them do it themselves. And since we started doing female founder university specifically – we've been able to greatly increase the number of female founders we invest in. And it's very puzzling to me um, why we don't we get many more females who want to come to a female founder university than a regular founder university. And it's something about the camaraderie, I think, is what they tell me, um, that because we do it just for women, people feel like we care. And if you contrast that to the Y Combinator experience that this one female founder told me about on the podcast, well, that's the opposite, right? So we kind of model like, well, let's do the opposite of what happened to YC in this experience. I think YC has really worked hard on it as well. They've become very diverse. Um, and if you don't work, because they started a female found a female only conference as well. So if you really want to impact change in the world, I think you have to be very deliberate and strategic about it. Is the point? And you I can't think, just hope. You have to do. Well, I think I was mistaken about this earlier in my career, which I was like, well. Anybody can come to the event. It's a free ticket. Come. If you don't want to come, don't come. And, I, you know, it's kind of a matter of fact about it because, you know, like I grew up in Brooklyn. Like people were just like, if you take it or leave it, whatever. You want to do it, you do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, like and then I was like, you know what? I guess I have some influence. I guess I can use it. Well, maybe I should use it. Right. And I think like what's the sense of having power or influence or leverage? Like I have a lot of leverage now. I have money. I have media. I have a network, like this is serious leverage. So I get to pick who's on the podcast. I get to pick, you know, who speaks at the events. I get to pick who we write the checks to. If you are lucky enough to be a kid from Brooklyn who gets to write that check, then take the work seriously. And that's, you know, in my book, I say, do the work, do the work. And that's our internal mantra with our team. It's like, let's just do the work. Let's work really hard and do the work to make the world that we want to see. Uh, and we can be the change, right? We can turn the you know tide, even if it's just one or two degrees. If everybody turns it one or two degrees, you know, Cheryl with her book, Y Combinator with their female founder, you know, events, just everybody turning it a little bit more just, it'll get there. And I, I think our industry gets a little bit of a bad rap because people have such a high expectation of us. They expect us to be better. Well, we should be. And I think that that statistic... Uh, with the 2.2% of dollars, I think that's a trailing statistic because if you look 10 years ago, uh, that's specifically venture dollars, not right. deals. Right. If you were to zoom that in on uh, accelerators, I would say it's probably 30% have female founders right now. That's how attuned Techstars, Y Combinator, Launch Accelerator are to this issue. The reason that number is so, um, I think, uh, dramatic is because 10 years ago there was a much different uh, spectrum and then most venture dollars go to late stage deals now because they're not going public. So in that statistic is 
$10 billion privately going into Uber. Some years ago. Some years ago, right? And so these are 10-year-old companies doing these giant financial transactions. I'd be very interested to see seed investing, accelerator investments over the last 10 years. And I bet you that paints a much different picture. The world is getting much better in this regard. And you see it also where I think it's super important, which is the number of female investors. That's changing dramatically because starting about three or four years ago, I think after Ellen Powell's trial, you know, she may have lost, but I think she probably had some very valid concerns um, in her case, even though she wasn't able to prove it or win it um, in San Francisco, right? Like she should have been able to win it. Um, if in San Francisco of anywhere. But I think that highlighted it so much because venture firms knew that they were an old boys club and they're like, wow, the world is now watching. We need to change this quick. And people started publishing statistics on each firm, how diverse <laughs> it is. Yeah, so I remember that, yeah. And I can tell you because, listen, I'm not in the venture you know, capital space. I'm in the seed fund space, a little bit different, the accelerator space. Um, they were panicked. And they're like, we need to get partners on board who don't look like white dudes from Stanford or Harvard Business School. Um, and it was a little bit of, you know, I think uh, uh, fudging of the numbers a bit. Like people would put a female, I remember meeting somebody who's a PR person and they introduced me as the partner at this venture firm. And I'm like, oh, you transitioned out of PR into investing. That's awesome. What have you invested in? Are you on any boards yet? And they're like, ah, I don't actually invest. I'm like, well, what do you do at this venture firm? And they're like, I do PR and marketing for the other partners. I'm like, but you're called a partner. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's super interesting. Like, <laughs> I'm going to just name everybody a partner at the firm. Right. And Change then, the statistics. But you don't have check writing ability, right. right? So that I thought was pretty nefarious. And I think that's changing like uh, now. And so that's what people – and you know what? These young entrepreneurs are different. Like millennial entrepreneurs, like they'll make a decision based on the composure of your firm. They'll make a decision based on you having Saudi money. And that's what I think – you know, a lot of these VC firms are starting to realize we're not going to get the next generation of awesome founders because the next generation of awesome founders are, might not look like Bill Gates. They might not look like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. They might look a little different. And if we're just a bunch of white dudes, like we might miss the next, you know, Stitch Fix or Sofia Amorosa or, you know. The next great yeah. new thing. And that's really if you – all of investing is – about not missing the big ones. It's You know how much you're going to lose when the company goes out of business. I'm going to lose 50K, a million dollars, whatever it is. You don't actually know how much you're going to lose by missing. You miss Uber. You miss Airbnb. You miss Dropbox. You miss Google. You'll be sitting there for the rest of your career going, oh, my Lord. <laughs> I miss Twitter. Like Twitter literally is a 40 or $50 million mistake for me. It's a 40 or 50. It was on the table right there. <laughs> I was one of the first users. I was the number two user behind Robert Scoble in the first year of Twitter. Then Barack Obama won the nomination. He became number one. All right. right. Like Scoble had 20,000 followers. I had like 15. And then all of a sudden Obama had 100,000. <laughs> it's like, wow, this Twitter thing could be big. It could be. It could Don't be miss. Yeah. If you miss, that's where you're going to be grinding your teeth forever. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been wonderful. What a great way to end this podcast. The next generation of awesome founders are going to be more diverse and better than ever before. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much to Jason Calacanis for joining us on this episode of the GrowWire podcast. I also want to thank our editors over at Lampstand, our producer, Kendall Fisher. Thank you, Kendall. Thanks for having me. And all of our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Bye. You just listened to the GrowWire podcast with host Fritz Nelson. Make sure to keep tuning in for more episodes full of tips, tools, stories, and strategies to help take your personal and professional growth to the next level. Until next time.